The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. meditate on the death of Christ in our singing tonight as we're coming to chapter 14 in our series of Mark, which nearly every commentator says begins the story of Christ's death proper. This is the, we've, we've come now to the, to the day or the days of Jesus as he approaches the cross. And really, I want to just make sure we, we think we've we, we take a series through Mark and perhaps once a week or sometimes it's once every two weeks take a small chunk of Mark and we've been working our way through Mark for, for some five or six months and I want to make sure that we don't miss the overall flow of the story of Mark and where we are and how Mark has been developing who Jesus is and what he's here to do. And if, if you think back over Mark, the first eight chapters, chapters one through eight, are largely a a crescendoing story marking who Jesus is. We get story after story of Jesus' miracles, his healings, casting out demons, several of his teachings, marking the power of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, the, the teaching of Jesus. And every time we see Jesus' power in his statements, we should be hearing him say who he is, and we should be asking, who is this? Who is this man who can heal with the word, who has power from God? And that's the question Mark is building up to until we get to the pinnacle, if you will, in Mark, at the end of Mark chapter 8 and the beginning of Mark chapter 9, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And then at the beginning of Mark 9, we have the story of the transfiguration where Jesus is revealed in all of His glory. And so the first part of Mark builds to those climaxes as we realize who Jesus is. He is the incarnate Son of God, the awaited Messiah. But if God has come in the person of Jesus, then the next question is, well, what is He going to do? What is this Messiah going to do? How is He going to fulfill all of the promises of God, and the, and the next chapters of Mark have been building towards the answer to that question. Chapters 9 through the end of Mark focus on the death of Christ. And right away in chapters 9 and 10, three times Jesus foretells to his disciples that he is going to die on a cross and then rise again. And then by the time we get to chapter 12, or excuse me, 11, we're into the, the Passion Week as he enters into Jerusalem. So, after building to the point of who is Jesus, he is the incarnate Son of God, Mark is now taking us to what is he going to do? And the answer is he's going to die for us, as Jesus has said several times. But the beginning of chapter 14 brings this story to the fore. As we, as we enter chapter 14, we're on the final day before Jesus celebrates the, the supper with his disciples, and then we'll get the, the supper that he celebrates with the disciples. It's his last days 
as he heads towards the cross. And Jesus' death is the dominating theme of this story. I want to read verses 1 through 25. This is, again, a larger portion of Scripture, but I hope you'll see the unifying theme and, and uh, emotion and, and goal of this text. So if you'd read with me verses 1 through 25 of Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, and there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And then as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have written and revealed and given to us. We pray that you would guide our hearts, draw them to you tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we walk through these last two days of Jesus' life, as as he heads toward the cross, I want, I want us to hear Scripture, and I want us to, to try to enter into this scene. 
Because I don't think we can fully understand the story that we're reading tonight if we don't understand the emotion of what's happening. Not to turn this into an emotional thing, but if we don't understand the emotions, the, the, what's actually happening in the interactions of the people in this story, I think we'll miss some of the power of what's happening in it. Jesus, we know, is headed to the cross. From the whole storyline of Scripture, we know that Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to go to die to his people. And so we have to assume that all throughout Jesus' ministry, his death was not far from his mind. But at this point in the story, Jesus' death fills his mind and completely shapes what he says and he does as he interacts with people in this story. I think about it, and and you think of any event that you have experienced that's a significant event or a major event. Maybe maybe it's a surgery. I can think of the one surgery that I've had in my life, and you know, months out, as soon as I found out I was going to have the surgery, it would enter my mind, and from time to time I'd think about it. I knew it was coming, and if anyone asked me about it, I, I could tell them about it, and at times it would just come to mind, oh yeah, I'm having surgery. But when you get to the day beforehand... The surgery fills your mind. All day long, you're thinking about what's coming the next day. Or, or maybe on a positive side, it's, it's a wedding. And you know you're going to be married. You know that the wedding is coming. But when you arrive at those days right before the wedding, it, it consumes you and fills your mind. And I think Jesus, as he heads to the cross, certainly knew all throughout his ministry and was shaped by his path to the cross. But here, now, Jesus' mind is filled in these last hours with what he is going to do. And so it shapes his comments in every one of the interactions that he has here tonight. And as Jesus heads toward the cross, his interactions in this passage highlight the significance of the salvation he's come to bring his his people and also the nature of the possible responses we could have to the salvation that Jesus offers. And I want to look at both of those tonight. The significance of the salvation Jesus has come to offer and also the possible responses that we could have to Jesus as he comes with this offer of salvation. Let's let's start by looking at the possible responses we could have to the Son of God. This passage gives us several different responses to Jesus, the Savior of mankind. Right in the first few verses, we see the examples of those who reject Jesus. Over the the three years of Jesus' ministry, Jesus has made it increasingly clear who he is and what he has come to do and how God will reward those who receive him and punish those who reject him. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, the chief priests and the scribes and the Jewish leaders have opposed Jesus. But as Jesus' ministry has become more and more clear, as as these years have gone on and it has become more and more clear what Jesus' claims are, who he says he is, and what he demands of people, the consequences of either receiving him or rejecting him, following him or departing from him. As that has become more clear, the opposition of the chief priests and the Jewish leaders has also become more clear and more staunch. Until we get to these verses in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, where we find out that the chief priests and the scribes are at the point of killing him. Now, the chief priests and the scribes have talked about killing him before, but it seems that their resolve has reached its climactic stage. It's no longer a question of if, it is now a question of when. And this this makes sense. Jesus has gone through this week 
in Jerusalem and think about what he's done. He started by riding in on a donkey and having all the crowds proclaim him the son of David. Then he followed that up by cleansing the temple and clearing away the sellers in the temple. Then in the last, in, in chapter 12, uh, 11 and 12, we saw the, the chief priests and scribes try to trap Jesus in his words and those tactics utterly failed and Jesus perfectly answered. But he also delivered the parable of the tenants, making it clear that those who did not come to him and receive him as the son would be cast out forever. And so Jesus, weak in Jerusalem, has made it all the more clear to the Jewish leaders that he must be opposed and they're ready to kill him. It's no longer a question of whether they need to oppose Jesus. They've tried everything, and so they now will arrest him and kill him. That's one opposition to Jesus. But verses 10 and 11 give us another example of the rejection of Jesus. Here, Judas, Judas, one of the twelve, comes to his last straw and decides to betray Jesus as well. Every time I read the story of Judas, I wish we had more information. What was going on in Ju- Judas's mind? What, what was going on for three years? For three years, G- Judas has been one of the inner twelve. Did he doubt Jesus right from the first place? Was he self-oriented right from the first day and just went with Jesus thinking it would get him to power in the kingdom of God? Was he excited about Jesus but something changed his mind? And if so, What? Where did, Jesus, where did Judas turn? We don't get answers to these questions. But we do get told, John suggests, that the story that we've read about the woman who poured this expensive, pure nard and ointment on Jesus' head was the last straw for Judas. Because John says Judas was the money keeper and was freely taking whatever money he wanted to from the, from the pot of the twelve. And Jesus and Jesus' refusal to, to bring money in, that his willingness to pour money out for himself was the last straw for Judas. How am I going to get what I want here if Jesus is willing to spend it all on himself or see it spent on himself? Who, who knows if that's all there is? But, but we come to verse 10. And here Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. And whatever the details here, I think these verses demonstrate that that Judas had seemed perfectly in step with the disciples. He had, he had walked with them for three years. If you think about what the disciples had done, he had walked with them and seen Jesus cast out demons. He had seen Jesus heal man after man. He had heard Jesus preach publicly the gospel. He'd also been in the inner gathering as Jesus explained the parables. He'd had the advantage of all the teaching. Think about it. Judas would have been one of the disciples that Jesus sent out with power to preach the gospel around Israel. Judas was, was one of those in, in ministry spreading the gospel. And who would have guessed that Judas was going to be one who would betray him? It, as it becomes clear later in the story, as Jesus is reclining at the Last Supper, it's clear that none of the other 11 disciples had any clue that Judas was, was at all suspicious. They, they don't look at Judas and say, hmm, yeah, I wonder who it could be. It's probably Judas. They don't have any clue. Judas appears to be one of the twelve in every respect, and yet, and yet he betrays his Savior. As we, as we look at Judas and the Jews and this response of rejecting Jesus, I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice a similarity and a difference. 
First, notice the similarity that both the Jewish leaders and Judas have fully and clearly seen and heard who Jesus is. Neither the chief priests and the scribes nor Judas are suffering from any lack of information. Neither of them are saying, well, we heard one parable and we're questioning things here. Or we saw one, one healing, but we're wondering what's going on. Both of them have heard the gospel. They've heard the good news. They've heard Jesus preaching. They've seen the miracles. The chief priests and scribes were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They have seen and they know who Jesus is. And as Jesus has said, his teachings and his miracles have both come to emphasize the same point, And that is that Jesus is the Son of God, come to forgive sins. God has come to save his people. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived. Deliverance and salvation for God's people has come. And the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas have heard this over and over. They've heard Jesus say it. They've heard his teaching. They've seen it in action in Jesus' life. There is no lack of information. They didn't miss out on any important proclamation. The heart of the rejection of Jews, of the Jews and of Judas is a heart that is bent in on themselves, buried in a sinful intent to live life their way after their pattern with their goals, and so they reject, betray, and are willing to kill God's offer of salvation. I want us... I want us to remember that. I'm not sure what your interactions are with unbelievers, but I know the pressure that I have felt at times that if I, I need to have the right answer and the perfectly clear explanation of the gospel because if I come to someone who's, who's not a Christian, their salvation will depend on how clearly I can answer their question or if I give them the right passages of Scripture or the right information. And I think Scripture is reminding us that no one rejects the gospel. No one rejects Jesus because of a lack of information. They reject him because of, in sin, they insist on their way of life and their pursuit in life rather than the call of God. There's a well-known response. Many of you have probably heard it before. Several famous atheists have uttered the same response. You have a a typical dialogue where someone will ask an atheist, you know, if, if God turns out to be real, and you show up in front of God, what are you going to say to him? And the typical response I've heard from several atheists is, well, I'll tell him he didn't leave enough information. That is not the case. And Scripture makes it so clear. For the chief priests, for the scribes, for Judas, this is no information problem. This is a heart problem. Will we follow Jesus Christ and who he is or not? Judas and the Jews are similar in that sense. But second, notice a difference. Notice an important difference between the Jewish leaders and Judas. The Jews have rejected Jesus from the beginning. They've opposed him and wanted nothing to do with him and his good news. The Jews' rejection of Jesus is never in doubt. But Judas, Judas seemed to follow Jesus. Jesus seemed to be one of the twelve. He went everywhere with Jesus. As we've already said, even the disciples would have had no suspicion of Judas. He seemed in every respect to be one of Jesus' own followers. And Judas, after three years of following Jesus, being part of his ministry, watching his miracles, seeming to be on Jesus' side, suddenly comes to this point, or maybe it's not suddenly, it's suddenly for us, it's suddenly in the text, but in his heart, perhaps not, comes to this point of showing that 
he does not actually belong to Christ. He does not actually love, worship, or follow Jesus. And I, I want you to hear in verses 10 and 11, particularly verse 10, the emotion of this text. This, this verse, verse 10, is, is a weighty text. It's a, it's, a, it's a verse that groans with deep sadness when we hear, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, who was one of the twelve, he had been with Jesus. It's him, it's that Judas, who went to the chief priests. Who? The very people who in verse 1 have just agreed that they must kill him. Judas, one of the twelve, went to those chief priests and agreed to, de- to betray him. Hear the heaviness and the weight and the grief of this verse. Judas has gone to portray Jesus. You know, there are certainly dramatic examples of those who seem to be Christians and then in a sudden flurry of rejection make it evident that they want nothing to do with Christ. Maybe you hear the story of a husband or a wife who's well-known in a church community who suddenly runs off uh, with an affair and disappears, leaving family and ministry behind. Maybe you hear a story like the one I read from uh, 20 years or so ago, the evangelical bank robber who was a well-known member of his church, gave testimonies weekly in church, but he was robbing banks throughout the week and shot several FBI agents uh, before he was finally captured. We have these dramatic examples of people who appear to be Christians and end up not being, but, but in some ways dramatic examples, I think, distract us from the application of this passage. Because the problem with Judas' response to Jesus here is not just that it's dramatic or surprising. It's with the fact that whatever it may have appeared, whatever Judas may have appeared to be doing to worship and love and follow Jesus, he actually had not laid down his life. He had not picked up his cross. He did not care for Jesus. His life was still his own, tightly grasped in the sinfulness of his own desires. And the horror of Judas is that he could put on such a front but the fact that he could never actually have trusted Christ. And that's a question that Judas raises for each one of us. I think of the question often as a youth pastor, but I don't need to be a youth pastor to think about this question. In a church our size, this has to raise the question. Are there those who who come to church who are willing to be involved at church? Maybe even some who would come to youth group or be a part of an evening service who appear to be walking with Christ but have not actually laid down their life, do not actually know their desperate need of a Savior, and have not actually run to find that salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the warning of this passage. It's the warning that a man like Judas can appear to be with Christ and yet end up rejecting him. So here's here's the rejection of the Jews and of Judas, similar and different but both reject the Son of God. But the passage of Scripture that that we've read tonight is not dominated by the rejection and the sinful self-service of Judas and the Jews. This passage also gives us a picture of worship and faith and love and acceptance and following of Jesus to the extent that Jesus himself calls it beautiful. I want you to look for a few minutes with me at verses 3 through 9 in the example of this woman. This woman who comes to Jesus while he's at dinner This is the night before the Last Supper. She comes to him and offers this costly sacrifice of praise and worship. 
There's no name given in this passage, but John's gospel identifies this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And so just as, just as the Jews have heard and seen Jesus and, and who he is in the offer of salvation and rejected it, so Mary has heard and seen and experienced who Jesus is throughout the years of his ministry. Just think about Mary. Mary is the one who sat at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha served And Mary sat at his feet, drinking in his words, listening to his good news, listening to his teaching. She's heard Jesus say who he is and what he has come to do. And of course, she also heard Jesus proclaim to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live again. She's heard Jesus proclaim that good news of salvation. And of course, she saw the power of God break the power of sin and death when Jesus called to her brother who had been in the tomb for several days, Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came forth. So Mary has, has seen the power of God. She knows who Jesus is. She has heard the teaching and she has received and accepted and believed that Jesus was her Messiah, her Savior, her resurrection life. And so if you can picture Mary's heart as she comes to this point in her life, having seen and heard who Jesus was, and having seen Jesus in all his power raise her brother from the dead, but also believe that he is her resurrection in life, her heart is bursting. It's bursting with the thanks and the praise and the wonder and the awe and the worship of this man. This man, Jesus, is my hope and my Savior. Jesus hasn't come to Mary and given her some abstract hope, like, Mary, I have something to tell you about a hope that's over here. I am the resurrection and life in your hope and joy, Jesus has told her. And Mary has believed that. She is overwhelmed by that. And it's that that moment of, of awe and wonder and worship and thanks that leads her to do this most beautiful thing, this most beautiful thing that she could do, to break the jar of pure nard, expensive ointment, and dump it all on Jesus' head. If this, if this bottle of ointment was really worth 300 denarii, many thousands of dollars in our current currency, it would have been an honor for Jesus if she had just dumped a few drops on his head. To open that flask and dump some of that expensive ointment on Jesus would have been an honor and an act of worship. But a few drops cannot suffice to express Mary's heart of worship and thanks and wonder. And so she dumps all of it, not just some of it, but all of it on his head. And John says she jumped more on his feet and even washed it than dried it with her hair. This is worship to its richest and fullest extent that Mary could do. What a moment in that house for Mary in the overwhelming worship of her Savior, to pour out all of this ointment and then to hear Jesus say, this was beautiful. You, Mary, have done something beautiful for me. Beautiful not in the sense of pretty, but beautiful in the sense of fitting, admirable, praiseworthy, delightful. This is the proper response to Jesus. When we see and we realize who he is, Mary models the right response. And I want to notice three things about Mary's response tonight. First, 
Notice that Mary's response is motivated by her love for her Savior. You know, Mary, Mary didn't pour out this ointment on Jesus because it was expected. She didn't, she didn't think, well, everyone expects me to do something from G- for Jesus because he's the Savior, so I guess, well, I better pour out some ointment here. This is no expected act. She didn't, she didn't do it to make a good impression on people. She wasn't thinking, well, if I pour ointment out, there's a lot of people here who are going to really think that I sacrifice for Jesus. She didn't do it to get Jesus' favor. She didn't do it to keep some law as if there was some demand that if Jesus visits your house, you should dump your most expensive perfume on it. This is not a matter of impressions or expectations or law or fulfilling some demand. Mary gives her treasure. She gives her multi-thousand dollar gift in full because her heart is overwhelmed with love and worship for her Savior. Kent Hughes commentator on this passage puts it this way. He says, Mary's work was so beautiful because it was simply done to Jesus and for Jesus with no thought to whether it was practical or sensible. Mary is overwhelmed with awe and worship of who Jesus is, and so she worships him to the full extent with no question of whether it's practical or sensible or or makes any sense or will impress anyone else. I I wonder if you and I know this feeling, this emotion, this almost overwhelming desire to, to do something, to do anything, to communicate to someone how much we love them. Most, most certainly, some of us have felt this either in a marriage or with, with a child or, or a parent, this desire of, I am so overwhelmed by my love for you. Is there anything I can do that will communicate my thanks for you? in my love for you. And I wonder, I wonder if we have felt that same, that same emotion, that same feeling, that same passion for our Savior. Have we felt this for Jesus, the Son of God who went through death for our sake? Have we thought, my Savior, my Jesus, is there anything that I can do to express the depth of my love or my worship? my awe and my thanks for you. Not because it earns anything. Not because it's expected. Not because it's the law. But because I long to do something to show how overwhelmed I am with my Savior. Emotion, of course, is not a constant high. None of us should expect that we will be at some high emotional fever pitch in our relationship with God any more than we would expect that we would be at some high emotional fever pitch with our spouses at at every moment. And yet, at times, when we realize who Christ is, the Son of God come from heaven, and when we realize what He has done, come to you and I, sinners deserving of death, and died for us, how can we not at times be completely overwhelmed with love and awe and thanks and worship for this Jesus? And if we've never been overwhelmed by who Jesus is and what he has done. Shouldn't we ask if we've really understood who he is and who we are and what he has done and what he offers us? Mary felt this. And the result of her love and her worship was a broken perfume bottle. So we notice first that she's motivated by this overwhelming sense of love and thanks and worship for her Savior. Second thing to notice about Mary, notice that her worship is unrestrained It's unrestrained by any other care in life. You know, there are plenty of things that could have distracted Mary here. 
as she's with Jesus at dinner. As we read John's account of this, I, think, I, find, it, uh, I find it ironic or, or, or funny that, that John says, Mary is reclining with Jesus as, as, he, as she comes here. Martha is serving the dinner. We get two accounts of Mary and Martha in the Gospels, and in both of them, Mary is the one busy serving the dinner. Or, sorry, Martha is the one busy serving the dinner, and Mary is there with Jesus. Mary certainly could have been busy serving the dinner as well. She could have been caught up in what dishes are brought. Do we have enough food? Have we brought the drinks out? There are details of hosting a dinner that Mary could have been distracted by. She could have been distracted by other things. She could have been distracted by the other people there. She could have been distracted by other things that she could have done with the perfume. Maybe she could have been distracted by, here, I'm going to dump all this perfume out. Well, maybe what else could I do with this? Maybe I shouldn't dump all of it out. Maybe I should only dump some of it. And maybe there's, there's plenty of other things that she could have thought about. But Jesus' comment, Jesus' comment says that Mary has done what she could. She didn't do a piece of what she could. She didn't do a part of what she could. She did what she could. Mary's worship is is full and unrestrained by other cares. It was a full delight in worshiping Jesus that is unrestrained by a thought for anything other than He Himself, other than Jesus. And again, I think Mary is a model for us here. We come to church, but think of how many times we come to church with other distractions on our mind. How many of us come to church and sit through service and have other thoughts running through our minds? Yes, we're here, but we're thinking about sports that are coming afterwards. Yes, we're here, but we're thinking about how hungry we are. Yes, we're here, but our kids are distracting us in the pew. Yes, we're here, but there's any number of things that are going on around us that can distract our worship. Mary calls us to a full, pure worship that is captivated by the glory of Jesus and cannot think about other piddling distractions because she is so consumed with Jesus, her Savior. Her sacrifice is motivated by love. It is a full, unrestrained worship, undistracted by anything else. And third, just note with Mary's sacrifice, note how pleasing this worship was to her Savior. The disciples, you picture this, here's, here's Mary. She has dumped this whole bottle of perfume out on Jesus. And the disciples respond indignantly. The disciples stand around and say, well, what was she doing that for? That was pretty foolish. She could have sold that for a lot more money. And they start bringing up all these indignant objections. And what's going through Mary's mind, I wonder? Is she she suddenly doubting herself? Boy, did I just do something stupid? Is she? We don't know. We don't get any comment. But we do get Jesus' comment. Jesus' comment is, she has done a beautiful thing for me. And wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You know, as a, as a, as a parent, we know what delight the halting attempts of our children to show love bring to us. I think most parents have probably at some point received from their two or three or four-year-old a scribbled picture, and they said, hey, this is for you mommy and, or daddy. Uh, I love you. Happy Father's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Or just, I made this for you. And of course, there's nothing in that picture that would be at all important or significant except for the fact that our child made it for us. I think back when I was probably 11, maybe 10, I decided I was going to be really good at wood carving. 
never carved any wood before. And I read in one of my boys' books that if you want to be a wood carver, you should start by carving bars of ivory soap. So I asked my mom to go buy me a six-pack of ivory soap, and I went down in the basement and started whittling soap away. And the results uh, were enough to tell me that I should probably not try wood. But I remember a few years ago, I, I don't know whether it's still there, but a few years ago, we were at my parents' house, and I noticed there on my mom's dresser was still this old, faded, yellowed turtle made of soap that I had whittled from the ivory bar of soap. There is certainly nothing remarkable about that bar of soap. But as a parent, you take delight in the love and the acts of your children. And here is Jesus. Jesus certainly knows all that Mary has and is that is flawed. But he takes great delight in this act of full worship. And would, what, a, what a joy it will be when we arrive at the feet of our Savior and hear him praise. Praise the acts of love and worship and thanks that we haltingly give. He's promised that at that moment we'll hear, well done and good and faithful servant if we pursue him and are faithful to him. And what a moment that will be. So we have these models. We have the Jews in Judas who reject Jesus because they are grasping their way of life and their expectations and goals in life rather than his. We have this model of Mary who responds with trust and faith and love and worship. But as we, after giving us these two models, Jesus ends our passage by describing in the clearest terms yet exactly what this glorious offer of the gospel is. And he brings he brings to the fore as he heads to that last supper with his disciples, as he, as he eats with them on that last night, and we look ahead to verses 22 through 25, we hear Jesus give us this clear summary, this clear picture of what he has come to do and to give us. And as Jesus leads his disciples through the, the Passover celebration, I want us to notice two things about what he says. First, notice that Jesus emphasizes that the gospel is not an abstract offer of hope or joy or salvation. It's not as if Jesus is giving them something else. It's not as if Jesus is saying, here, over here I have some salvation to give you. Jesus is emphasizing that the gospel, the offer of the gospel, is the offer of himself. It's the offer of his own body and his own blood. He says, take, this is my body. Take, this is my blood. Our hope of salvation, our, our joy, our, our salvation is not just something else that Jesus gives us. It is Jesus himself that he is giving us. We come to salvation by coming to Jesus himself. You know, it certainly, it certainly seems possible when I think about it from a parent's perspective that God could have come up with some way to give salvation to his people without sacrificing himself. Because in my sinful mind, I'm thinking about discipline, and I'm thinking, well, if I was going to discipline one of my children and I wanted to be merciful, I could just say, you're here to receive a spanking, but I'm not going to spank you. I'm giving you a pass instead. But that's not what, what Jesus is doing. That's not what Christ is doing. He's not coming to just say, I will forgive you so you don't have to have the punishment. He's coming to say, I'm offering you myself 
to take the punishment for you, to unite you to myself so that I myself am your salvation. You receive salvation by coming to me. And I don't want us to miss that Jesus emphasized that he's not just giving us some expensive gift. He's not just letting us off the hook. He is giving us himself. He is giving us his own body and his own blood that he might be our salvation. Christ offers himself for us and to us and calls us to come to himself because that's the offer of the gospel. Come to me, feed on Christ. The metaphor of eating and drinking that Jesus uses tells us how essential it is for us to come to Christ. Read a quote from a former Secretary General of the United Nations, Charles Malik. He was talking to a group of people about his faith in Christ, and he said this. I want you to listen to what he said and think about how striking it is. He said, I can live without food. And he was someone who had. I can live without drink. I could live without sleep. Perhaps even I could live without air. But I cannot live without Jesus. Jesus has come to offer us himself. The call is to feed on Jesus. For he alone is our hope of life. That's the first thing we notice, that Jesus has come to offer himself. But I want us, I want us to notice also, I want us to notice also the hope that Jesus holds out to us. Because Jesus ends by noting that he himself will not eat or drink again until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. But follow Jesus' logic. If salvation is coming to Jesus himself, and Jesus himself is right on the verge of entering the kingdom of God, then the call and offer of salvation is a call and an offer to come with him into the kingdom of God. It's a call and an offer to come to himself, to come be with him, to come and eat and drink anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus offers us himself, and in himself he's offering us a place in the kingdom. And as you walk through your week ahead of you, I don't know what things will come through your life. I don't know what challenges are going to come to you this week. I don't know what busy, mundane details are going to fill your week. I don't know what stress and anxiety is going to fill your week. I don't know what attractively tempting pleasures of the world are going to come across your path this week. But this week, the offer of the gospel is to come to Jesus Christ, to come feed on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you do, the hope that he offers is to participate with him in the kingdom of God, to join him in the new kingdom that God is bringing about. And so how will we respond? As Jesus offers himself and offers us a place with him in the kingdom, will we respond like the chief priests and the scribes who reject him because they have a different goal and plan and path for life? Will we respond like Judas and seem to go along with it until it departs from what we want from life? Will we respond like Mary with a deep trust and an overwhelming thanks and worship and love for the Savior who invites us and welcomes us into the kingdom? My prayer is that we will know this overwhelming joy of coming to Jesus in his kingdom 
And may we be about such beautiful things that Mary was about as we worship and love our Savior this week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for the Son of God who came with power, demonstrating who he was, and then when he had made it clear that he was none other than the Messiah of God and went to the cross to die for his people. I pray that you would, that you would overwhelm our hearts, that you would captivate our hearts so that our natural response is one like Mary, of pure and full and undistracted worship and love and thanks to our Savior. We pray this to the glory of your name.